Genesis chapter 6 in our Bibles. And again, as I noted, we're kind of going backwards a little bit from last week. We have to. And then we'll go to 7 and 8 and 9. Um, I think it'll be for obvious reasons, but I do hope you'll look at the scriptures yourselves and try your best. Ask the Lord to help you to focus on the Word of God as we look at the foundations, the beginnings of, of everything. You know, if you, if you believe these truths, if you believe what God did in these chapters, you won't have any problem believing Jesus walked on water or the resurrection or anything else. And so that's why God gave us this amazing text. Genesis 6, let's look at verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why would a good God destroy the world with a flood? Because a good God knows that people's hearts and imaginations that are only evil continually just increases in violence and destruction. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created, from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Father, please help us tonight again. As we noted just a moment ago, we need your help to hear and to learn and to grow, to be established, Lord, in the faith. And I pray as we look at this text, at your word, your eternal word, preserved for us in this place at this time, that we will hear what the Spirit has to say. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look again, and this time in verse 13 of this text, you'll notice, as I alluded to a moment ago, two important words spoken by God in his divine pronouncement on the world, the world at large. Verse 13, and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. That's the two words. Through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In other words, the violence that is now covering the known world isn't random. It's not accidental. It's not without cause. The violence is through them. It goes back to one of the very first principles that we have to embrace that we studied the very first or second lesson here. And that is the fact that man is not good. He's not basically good. He has fallen and left to himself. He will become violent and more violent and more wicked. And let me say this too at the outset. You're going to see that one of the fundamental principles in the Bible, in Genesis, in the beginning, especially as we go through this series, is that the most degenerate the times, okay, the darkest the times, the most degenerate the times, the more definite the testimony. Now, that's a fact. That's a truth in the Bible, and it ought to be an encouragement to you and to me. In other words, God has always had his remnant. God has always had his witness, and God has always had his man. Or in the case of Esther and, and others, he's also had um, Deborah, his, his women. So with the whole world now crumbling around him and with spiritual darkness covering the world and violence and injustice and wickedness is the bible says everywhere and constantly in man's heart there's one man who is described in this text with very specific really honestly theological terms look at verse 9 these are the generations of noah noah was a just man and perfect in his generations and noah walked 
with God. Can I ask you what it means? What do you think it means when it says that Noah was just and perfect? Well, you know, most of you here do, you know perfectly well that it doesn't mean that he was sinless. And if you doubt that, just hang on a little bit. Keep on reading in the next couple of chapters. What it does mean is what the Bible says about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to put it on the screen. This is a familiar text, of course. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. They'd never seen rain yet. Moved with fear, the fear of God, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The righteousness is imputed. It's not because he was so awesome, he was perfect, he was sinless. It was because of his faith. He simply believed God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, meaning that he did not find favor, obviously, in the eyes of man. Now, don't forget that there are two descriptions in this text. One, back in verse 4, last week, see what it says? that there were mighty men of renown. That means they were renowned in the eyes of men, famous in the eyes of men. The other describes a man of grace. A man who found grace, quote, in the eyes of the Lord. Let me ask you tonight, whose favor and whose eyes would you rather be? God's eyes or man's eyes? Look at verse 14. God says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Sort of a tar and so on. Let's go to verse 18. But with thee I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. By the way, when I read certain skeptics or when I hear them here and there and they, they talk about, do you really believe? Do you really believe that all of the animals in the world today came from the animals uh, on the ark alone? That's a kid's story. And I've heard it my whole life here and there. And, and on a couple occasions, University of Tennessee, for example, a professor there said it to me. And I always think, you know, that comes from someone Do you believe all the animals in the world came from the animals on the ark? It comes from someone who believes that all of the animals in the world came from a speck of dust. That's their version. Well, then how did they get on the ark, Pastor? And how did did Noah get them all there and they're all over the world and who subdued them? Well, I can tell you it's apparently the same God who had them parade before Adam when he had him name them. Like I said, if you can believe that verse, you can believe this verse. You just believe the Word of God. Look, folks, the Lord Jesus had a fish go get a coin that was lying down somewhere. Had to get the fish, had to find it, bring it up to the surface so that he could pay his taxes. He had a whole bunch of fish hang around one side of a boat and swim into a net. He commanded a fig tree, and the fig tree listened. He calmed a storm with his words. He created all of these animals so that I don't need a material explanation for a divine act. And this is a divine act. Now, having said that, nevertheless, these arc dimensions 
And beloved, this entire narrative is yet another example of how some people who don't know the Bible are, as the Apostle Peter said, willingly ignorant about these truths. Someone says, you know, it's impossible for Noah to take all of the animals of the world into the ark. Now, if you hear that, and I heard it in high school and other places, if you hear that, just ask them a couple questions. Ask them, A, this simple question. Do you know how big the ark is or was? Do you know? Give me the dimensions. And then B, ask them if they know how many animals it would take, would be needed on that ark to continue the animal kingdom. And you know, the, the truth is, they don't know. They just know it couldn't be enough. They don't know any of that. They don't know, for example, that, and let me just spend two minutes on this, that biologists have said that at most, at most 8,000 animal uh, genera at the most, you think you take the genes of a dog and a wolf and a coyote and so on, right? So that as little, these are all these little studies that I've read them, some of you have read them, 2,000 animals would do the job. They don't know that even the text says that you don't have to worry about sea life, you don't have to worry about plant life, insects were not required, and so on. They don't know that 2 million cubic feet is the equivalent value, if you will, of 522 standard railroad stock cars. And every one of those can contain 240 sheep. Now, I've read this stuff for years and so on. They don't know that there have been scores of feasibility studies by unbelievers and believers that say, how could this happen? Is it possible? And using the Bible's dimensions that the 6,000 animals, that, that's all that would be needed, would have occupied less than half the space of the ark. What about dinosaurs? I don't know. What about them? He didn't have to have a full-grown T-Rex there. He could have had a juvenile. I don't know all of those things. All of these statements and all of these questions, frankly, that are made by people, most of which are, quote, willingly ignorant because they have an unknown size boat and they have an unknown number of animals. It's just they don't know. They just say it couldn't have happened. There's not enough room. Or the other ones, Noah would have needed oxygen on the top of Mount Ararat. I've heard that one. And how did the carnivore survive for a year? Every single one, by the way, of these questions has long, long ago been answered simply and satisfactorily to people who really care. The problem with all of that is this. When it comes to God's Word, and when it comes to salvation, which is what this whole text is about, they wouldn't believe it anyway. That's why Peter said, willingly ignorant. For instance, I never knew until I read it when I think I was in, a senior in high school that 240 sheep could fit into a standard railroad car. I never knew that. I didn't know that the ark displaced some 44,000 44, tons of, of water. What I did know, and all I needed to know, is that the God who created it all the world and the stars and the mountains and the seas with his word, all I needed to know is that he also tell, told me that he brought a flood. And he told Noah to bring the animals on the ark. And thank God I believed him. You know, liberal theologians are interesting people. They affirm that there is a God. That's why they study theology. They affirm, maybe even many of them do, that there's an, a supreme almighty being in the universe, and he is God. But then they say that the Red Sea wasn't really parted by a miracle. 
that some wind blew, and it was a shallow part, and people, they walked across on, in three feet of water, which three feet of water also killed Pharaoh and his army somehow. As if the supreme almighty being in the universe can speak the worlds into existence, which they will accept. But they can't handle, he can't handle a speck of water on one of the tiniest dots in that vast universe. Now, folks, this is the foundation. The foundation, once you believe it, you don't have any problem believing what God did in Egypt with the children of Israel. This is the very, very first book of the Bible. The foundation of all faith and all truth. And from the very first line of this book, in the beginning, God, right here to chapter 6, 7, and 8, we're reminded that the omnipotent creator of the universe, this same God, is down here personally involved in the lives of men and women. Look at chapter 7. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Righteous, yes. We just read why he was righteous. Hebrew says he believed God. He wasn't sinless. He trusted God. The most important aspect of this whole story is the spiritual message. Man is a sinner. Judgment was coming. God provided a way of salvation, and the invitation was to come. By the way, there's a little interesting detail in the ark resting. Look at chapter 8. Let's skip ahead. We're going to come back in a minute. Verse 3. It says, The waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of 150 days the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. That's interesting. Why all this detail? You know, in Exodus 12, too, the seventh month was assigned to the first month, which is called Nisan. On the tenth day of that month, they secured that Passover lamb that we remembered this past Sunday night. And then they killed it on the fourteenth day. The Lord Jesus was resurrected on the 17th day, just as the ark rested on the very same day of the very same month. And why is that important? Because you'll notice the word rest is a theme of this entire story. Chapter 8, verse 9 says, The dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. Remember, Noah's name, if you remember last week, means rest. And when the ark came to rest on Ararat, you understand that that was more than just a physical landing on a mountain. This was a brand new beginning. The old violent world of Ad, that Adam and Eve eventually came to know was now clean. Water cleanses. And it's at rest because the violence and the violent ones are gone. The question is this. Now that God has done this, how long is it going to stay at rest? For all of our friends who believe that we can reform the world... How long is the earth going to stay at rest? In fact, do you notice what Noah did as soon as he got off the ark? You're in chapter 8. Look at verse 14 for a minute. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Must have been an amazing moment, right? Well, here's verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. 
Noah didn't have Moses' law. You realize that, right? He did not have the Mosaic law that gave the prescription for all of these sacrifices. Yet this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden when God himself killed an animal and blood was shed to remind Adam and Eve that sin is awful and horrible. What's the issue here? The issue is still sin. Still, the issue is still man, even a righteous man, who is nevertheless fallen. Just as the ark pictured Christ, so do these sacrifices picture Christ. I mentioned that today in my office for almost three hours, it wasn't until two hours in and I mentioned the Lamb of God and it was like you could see. Wait. So that's why. So that's who Jesus is. And you know, even though the world is clean and at rest on this one day, it won't be long until God commands Noah that something is going to be sadly realized. This command is in chapter 1. Let's turn ahead. And again, this is foundational. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Skip down to verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Wow. You see, beloved, note this, the earth was cleansed. That's what water does, but it was not purified. Fire purifies. Chapter 8, go back, look at verse 6. And again, please use these scriptures and follow carefully. It says in verse 6, And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. A raven is a carrion bird. It's unclean. It eats flesh. And obviously there would be a lot of flesh all over the planet for him to eat. He probably ate himself into oblivion. Time went by and Noah decided to send out another bird. It's a dove. A dove is a bird of a different nature. And so we read this in verse 11. And the dove came in to him in the evening and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth, and he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not unto him again unto him anymore. In other words, he found a place to land. Now, folks, hear this. There is undoubtedly in the details of the raven and the dove some symbolism here. Undoubtedly, there's certainly an analogy between the old nature and the new nature. It's interesting to me that he had an olive branch. You know, it's an expression today. Extend the olive branch. The United Nations right now and always has used a dove and an olive branch as symbols of peace and rest, which is ironic. There's no peace coming out of the United Nations or rest. So here's the world finally at rest again, cleansed, and yet with Noah and his family and their offspring, there's no improvement. Noah, somebody kills somebody, capital punishment. Right off the bat, before anybody kills anyone, it's true that injustice was halted for a moment, evil was stopped for a moment, and God made a covenant with Noah, as we'll see in a minute. But it was not the new covenant. You understand? This rest is not the final rest. Well, Pastor, when? What is the final rest? Peter tells us that, and he uses the story of Noah. Second Peter, look at verse 5. Chapter 2, where are we at? Chapter 2, verse 5. 
All right, I'll just read it up there. And he spared not the old world, look at your Bibles, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Notice that whole story. They says they don't believe it because they are willingly ignorant. And then I think it's verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness, right? So what's going to happen to the old one? The Bible tells us, and here's what Peter's saying, beloved. He's saying that what we mentioned earlier about scoffers, in the last days, in these days, scoffers will come just like they were in the days of Noah. But even then, even now, then, when men are walking after their own lusts, the more degenerate the times, the more definite the testimony. We have the opportunity to shine like Noah. You have the opportunity to believe God in these dark days. God has always had a remnant. And God has always kept His Word. Now very quickly, notice how many times in our text God mentions the word covenant. Look at chapter 9, would you? Of Genesis. Verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, and God said, this is the token of the covenant which I made between me and thee. You'll notice verse 13, and I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant. Verse 15, and I will remember my covenant. Verse 16, and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I remember the everlasting covenant. Let's stop here for a moment because over and again, God says that he at this time with this man and this family is establishing a covenant over the entire earth. What's a covenant? It's a promise. A covenant is a promise. And in this case, it is a unilateral, universal promise that God makes with man and, by the way, with animals. A promise and a purpose that is still in effect to this very moment. And yes, the symbol, the token of that covenant, God says, is going to be this bow in the sky. We call it a rainbow. It remains, as you know, one of the most beautiful, extraordinary wonders still to the world. It's a curved line like this. It's up in the sky, and it consists of seven colors. Seven is the number of God. It is the number of perfection. On the seventh day he rested, the seven churches, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, the seventh angel. How many times shall I forgive? And Jesus said 70 times seven. It goes on in the word of God. Seven colors in the bow, including red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. In science class, you probably use a mnemonic. We did. Richard of York gave battle in vain. That's how you would remember it. Or ring out your granny's something in vinegar, which is how they did it in Kentucky schools to remember it, I think. Boots. It was actually Isaac Newton who first distinguished the seven colors. He placed indigo between blue and violet. But folks, the colors have always been there. Rainbows are amazing. They're part of songs somewhere over the rainbow. They're part of poems, poetry. I've got the world on a string sitting on a rainbow. I won't sing it. 
Leprechauns have their pot of gold at the end of a rainbow buried somewhere. Leave it to Irish to send you on a wild goose chase for no reason. Rainbows are always a pleasant surprise. People say, look at the rainbow. Pull out your phone. Take a picture of the rainbows. Did you see the rainbow, they say. It's not surprising then that the world, because biblically this is of God, that politicians and activists co-opt the rainbow as a symbol of their coalition or their cause or their organization. The truth is all of God's creation is plagiarized and appropriated in some form or another because Satan has no creativity. All he can do is imitate. If the rainbow is relegated to some flag or toy or mythology or pop song, and that's all it is, that's a folly that should not be true of us as God's people. This is God's word. We should look at this. And as Christians, let me say this, we should never lose sight of something so glorious that God did in his word, as powerful and as meaningful as this is. So that when it comes to this bow that we see, Notice certain things that God shows us about it. Chapter 9, verse 14. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. In other words, it's up. It's in the cloud. It's above us. So here, let me ask you this. What do you see when you see a rainbow in the sky? Seriously, what does a rainbow remind you of as opposed to to what it's meant to remind you of. You know, rainbows occur when sunlight is retracted. It goes, as you know, into a raindrop, and it causes these different wavelengths of visible light. Sunlight always goes through a raindrop, always. But if it goes through at 40 to 48 degree angle, and it reflects off the back of the raindrop, You can see it, but only if you are in the right position in the right place to see it. That's the physical science of a rainbow. But spiritually speaking, you also have to be in the right place to understand the message God is giving us from these same colors. And what was the message, Pastor, that God gave to Noah? Look at verse 15. He says, and I will remember. I want you to look at that word. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. In other words, what we see when we look up is that God is on his throne. That this is the God who made this and established it thousands of years ago, that God is powerful. He destroyed the world with a flood. And that God is trustworthy. That God is alive. And that God is personal. Look at verse 8. Go back of chapter 9. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him. Pastor, God spoke to Noah? Of course he did. And whether you realize it or not, God wants to speak to you and your family, your marriage, your home. He wants to speak to you. This is, he gave us this book. The Bible says that Noah walked with God. You know that God wants you to walk with him. He is a personal God. And one of his main messages to his own is, I'm on my throne. I'm in control. So that there's no reason for you to worry and fret and and, uh, envy the wicked and at their prosperity. People talk every day about the world being in crisis. 
global cooling, global warming, financial collapse, war, religious hatred, nuclear ambitions and racism and political malpractice and terrorism and earthquakes and floods. You cannot turn on the news tonight or open up a newspaper or any news source and without seeing nothing but storm clouds everywhere in the world. Storm clouds. But you know, in a world of faithlessness and fear, you cannot blame some people when the storm clouds is all that they have. When that's all they have. But we're people of God. You're people of God. You're supposed to understand that God is a covenant maker who never forgets a single word of all his good promise. You just read the end that Peter talks about. We're reading the beginning that God talks about. And all of it, all of it tells us no matter what the clouds are, God is on his throne. And that means no matter what the storm, you as a Christian look past the storm and you see the rainbow of God above the throne of Christ translating in the midst of life storms a Christian like Noah who is joyful, courageous, wise, and most of all, faithful. And that's not all. Look at verse 16. And the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant. Look up here for a minute. If you ask the average Christian what the rainbow symbolizes, ask any Christian, maybe most in this room, you say, hey, listen, why did God put a rainbow in the sky or a bow? And they will say to remind us, to remind us that God will never again destroy the earth with water. But that's actually not right. In fact, I might go so far as to say that's actually wrong. You see, folks, this is God's covenant. We just read the language over. I will establish my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. As such, it is a promise that is entirely unilateral. Noah didn't agree to this covenant. He didn't sign any papers. He didn't have any collateral to put up. He didn't give God some money or a fee or a deposit. What did Noah do? He listened. And so it is that even the token of the covenant, even the rainbow itself, is Godward and not manward. And if you doubt that, read these verses with me. Verse 13. I do set my bow in the cloud. Look at verse 15. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. You're saying that the rainbow is a reminder for God. It's not a reminder for man so much. I can't believe that. Then what are you going to do with verse 16? Look at it. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I, God is speaking, I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh is it upon the earth. You see, folks, look. In other words, I'm just saying this. The rainbow in the sky is there. Not so much as to remind us as it is to reassure us that God makes promises and he never forgets them. We're forgettable people. We forget all the time. I love post-it notes. I've got three here in my Bible. use them all the time. But I most, mostly use them to remind myself. Post-it notes were invented accidentally, by the way. Dr. Spencer Silver, he worked for 3M Company, and he was supposed to develop this super, super glue that nothing, nothing, like Gorilla Glue is today, I suppose. But he came up with this mild, low-tax stuff that was garbage, they said it's, it's worthless, it's useless, and they called it a solution without a problem. In 1974, he had a colleague who worked with him there. His name was Art Fry. He's another scientist. 
He was practicing in the church choir of all places. He was so annoyed by the bookmarks in the hymnals that they kept sliding around that he, he went off to work and he got some of this low tacky glue and he had the only scraps of paper that were there was the good old yellow notepads and he ripped it up and he was the talk of the choir. He had them everywhere. Can you imagine in 1974 being the only guy on earth that has a post-it note? <laughs> he was Adam. He was Noah himself. Today they're sold a billion dollars a year, and I can tell you why. Most people use them like I use them. You forget, I put them on the dash of my car. If I don't write on it what I'm supposed to remember, I'll forget why I put it there every single time. We're forgetful. The reason why God placed that beautiful post-it note in the sky is to show us that God is not forgetful. That's what it's really about. In other words, the first time it starts to rain again and Noah's family gets nervous, and I would, right? Mm, not again. Or the 50th time. Was he supposed, Noah's supposed to stop and think, oh yeah, I'm supposed to remember my covenant with God. Was he supposed to say, oh yeah, I, I made a deal. That's right. I'm, I'm remembering now and it's, it's encouraging me. Not really. It's more, that's right, there's a bow in the sky. God made a covenant. And right now, the fact that God, from his perspective, sees a rainbow as his token reassures me simply that he never, never forgets a promise. The rainbow appears in heaven. It is of divine origin. It is the work of God's hands. Man didn't ask for it. He didn't create it, and he can't destroy it. All they can do is let Satan try to steal it and defile it. That's all. There's a third thing. We're almost done. Chapter 9, verse 16. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. I want you to notice the last line of verse 12. This covenant is for a perpetual generation. In other, in other words, look, every rainbow combines two basic elements, light and water, right? Why would God use those? Always, you have to have light and water. How everlasting, how everlasting is the token of God's covenant? Well, the Lord Jesus appeared on the scene and he said, I am the light of the world and I am the living water. Reminding us that when God fashioned his earthly creation of a rainbow, when God gave Noah and all of us a bow on earth, he already had the original model up in heaven. How do you know that, Pastor? Revelation chapter 4, you don't need to turn there. The Apostle John is given a vision of God's very throne. Amazing. When John saw Jesus, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on his throne, he wrote these words, Behold, one sat upon the throne, and he that sat was a look upon as jasper, and there, John said, was a rainbow round about the throne. Ask the pilots in here, Brother Larry and others who have flown really high and looked down, Brother Pat, they'll tell you that the rainbow's a circle from up there. In God's throne, this rainbow is surrounding the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord Jesus who is the sign of the new covenant, the embodiment of that covenant for us. God keeps his promises. I'm a part of the new covenant. 
the New Testament, which is in his blood, as we noted on Sunday night. And I'm just saying tonight, beloved, you can trust this God. The idols and the made-up gods and the religions and all that, you, you can trust this God. Which brings me to the final thought. If Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just as a farmer, all right, just as a man who had a family and a children, a believer, if Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in the worst possible time, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually, a faithless and dark time, what's he going to do now? This man is going to get off of this ark with his family. And what's he going to do? And if you're wondering, you know, what is all this? What's my response to these glorious promises and realities? I can assure you that it's not so that you can be apathetic as the world gets darker or self-assured or wicked or compliant, complacent. Not if you look at Noah's future. Everybody talks about his past and what he did and he built the ark, but he also had a future. It must have been amazing, right? Let's read it. And then we'll close. Verse 19. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Now, folks, listen. Hear me carefully. That's what he did before the flood. This is amazing to me. Here is a man who just spent decades, a hundred years, This is a man who spent decade after decade after decade laboring on an ark. Now he's aged. He's the senior patriarch of the entire world. You know, he did something bigger than any president, any king, any conqueror, any explorer has ever done in the history of the world. He saved the world. What he did, what he accomplished because of his simple faith. And now what? He just goes back to farming? He's going to go back out in the world and start all over? Nope. He doesn't sit idle. He doesn't moan that his purpose is over. I have no more purpose in life. Can you imagine having the greatest purpose of any human being ever? And now it's gone. I just can't do anything. He didn't say he's too important now or he's too spiritual or valuable to go back to till the ground. Nope. At 700 years of age. He's still the servant of God. That's why Hebrews 11.7 says, Noah became heir of righteousness by faith. Peter said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness his entire life. The way he lived was a sermon. And many times in those difficult days, whenever a storm appeared, there would appear with it the bow of God in the clouds. It is a bow that remains in these last days of God's grace in which we are living right now that will one day be turned around not to judge the earth with water, but to judge the earth with fire. And there will be, as we read a moment ago, a new heaven, a new earth. In the meantime, I take from this, look, you go to work tomorrow morning. If you go to work as a child of faith and you believe God and trust God, and you're a preacher of righteousness. That's a life of faith. God wants to walk with you. He wants you to walk with Him. He wants to speak with you through His Word. He doesn't want you to be full of fear and fret and envy at what's going on. He wants you to be full of courage and boldness and faith. 
So why are you fretting about American politics, the moral decay, burden? That's one thing. But envy, that's another. Even health problems. Stretch yourself out in the shade of God's covenant of which you're a part and be faithful. Faithful to the end. And God's people said, I mean, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And these are not just stories. Help us to be reminded, dear God, tonight that these are not just parables. These things happened and they happened for a reason. We're reminded that man left to himself, that all of us in this room left to ourselves. We could never reform ourselves. But thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the change that happens, the miracle of the new birth inside of us. And thank you, Lord, that the just still live by faith. Help us to trust every word of your, this book, always. And be bold as we go out into this world with it. And to do it until the end, Lord, when, when you come and you create for eternity a new heaven and a new earth, and there shall be no more tears, nor pain, nor sorrow, nor death. We praise you for that, and we trust that glorious promise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.